Welcome to App Talk with Uptick, where we dig into the nitty gritty of how to grow apps and games. We speak with industry experts about specific strategies, tools, and tactics they use to find success, and we keep you up to date with emerging news and trends in the ever-changing games, marketing, and technology ecosystem. My name is Xander Augusta, Director of Marketing here at Uptick, and joining me today are my co-host, Warren Woodward, co-founder of Uptick. And our guest, Derek Morton, President of Flowplay. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Derek. Happy to have you. Good to be around. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's 10, so I'm awake. Awesome. Uh, so our first section is Industry Insights, where we do a deep dive in industry news. A couple of interesting articles to cover this week. So pa pass it off to Warren to get us started. Yeah, we're going to start with the spicy one. So um, we've been tracking uh, over the podcast some interesting acquisitions from Embracer Group over the last year or two. And this was one we were not expecting. So um, they, they acquired uh, Lord of the Rings IP. So uh, yeah, with this, we're, we're going to link an article from the Washington Post, a uh, Swedish entertainment company buys rights to Lord of the Rings films and other Tolkien intellectual properties. So a quick poll quote, uh, Embracer Group agreed to acquire Middle Earth Enterprises from the Saul Zantz company. The deal gives Embracer the rights to the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit film trilogies and any Tolkien related movies, video games, board games, merchandising, theme parks and stage productions. The purchase was part of six acquisitions by Embracer Group totaling 6 billion Swedish krona, uh, which is about $573 million. Um, do want to clarify that this deal is specifically for Middle Earth Enterprises. So they don't own the Tolkien catalog outright. Uh, Middle Earth Enterprises was the entity that uh, specifically owns the IP licensing rights. So it's a little confusing, but they, uh, you know, they can essentially now control the, uh, the licensing of these franchises. Um, and just as a reminder, so Embracer Group uh, has been on a spree of picking up these IPs uh, over the last couple of years. We saw them pick up IPs, including Borderlands, Tomb Raider, Deus Ex, and Thief, um, and some in, in the gaming world, and then multimedia properties, including Umbrella, Academy, Sin City, 300, and Hellboy. Um, and then one last note uh, that Embracer Group recently took a billion dollar investment from Savvy Gaming, which is uh, from the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Investment Fund. And they are definitely putting that money to use. So this was a uh, big and unexpected uh, acquisition. Guys, what, what do you think about this play from Embracer and just their general strategy of um, doubling down on IP? Yeah, I wasn't aware of it until you sent it over, I, uh, and it, it feels a little, a uh, little off target for them. I mean, Embracer's been, you know, their their sole purpose up until recently has been just to to roll up game companies, right? They, they're a public company, and their their goal is to just buy medium to medium large game companies and roll them into uh, one large company and have a public company. And uh, they've been very successful at that, bought a lot of stuff, bought some friends of mine's companies, and the, those friends are happy with the arrangement, happy with their new ownership. But owning the Tolkien catalog and the video and movie rights, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, I, I'm not sure how well aligned they are to take advantage of it. Hopefully they won't uh, try and make their own movies. <laughs> They'll find uh, really competent people to go out and make movies and, and things for them because I don't see it going well if Embracer decides that they're a, you know, they're another Warner Brothers or a motion picture studio capable of doing something great. Uh, with yeah, I, I read they're, they're thinking about a a Gandalf spinoff film. <laughs> okay, I'd watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, what, what are you thinking about this, 
Yeah, we've been following Embracer pretty closely. I mean, one of our first uptick clients was an Embracer group acquisition. And, you know, I think it was pretty critical last time we talked about them, just taking money from the Saudi sovereign wealth fund. You know, we talked about the necessity there because they basically have been increasingly, it was basically their only growth strategy is inorganic growth. And so they needed to take on ever more money to continue to roll up more and more properties. Um, you know, I think the Lord of the Rings IP is obviously an incredibly valuable IP. And the thing that really makes sense to me is they own all these game developers. So now they took this IP and they can roll it down to their different game developers and produce uh, Lord of the Rings games, which I think would do really well. I think that is maybe the most obvious uh, first step of like, okay, where's, where can we immediately be creative with this acquisition? Uh, that seems like a really, really obvious one. You know, I've been, Embracer is very much focused on the Confederated States model. They are largely decentralized. I mean, each of these game companies largely work independently. And I'm curious, I'm, you know, I'm not certain that that is over the longest, long period of time, the way that you're going to get the most valuable value out of all the different uh, satellite states that they have in these scheme developers. But I mean, it's worked for them so far. Uh, I mean, would you go buy Embracer? I guess question for you guys, you know, you look at the stock price for Embracer Group, would you uh, go buy it today? I mean, do you see it as like forward looking? Are these guys in a position to dominate continuing going forward? I'm not going to claim to be, uh, you know, a master of of evaluating companies, um, but I, I do want to back up to one thing that Derek mentioned that you know a couple of pieces just clicked together with me. Like uh, we've seen uh, Embracer kind of do you know two distinct things here, uh, as Derek said, like acquiring small to medium sized game developers, um, with you know the unspoken uh, implication that in those those acquisitions, they believe those developers are capable of doing more than they've done in the past. Then on the other hand, they're acquiring these um, medium to exceptional IPs. Right. So uh, I could see sort of like the boardroom pitch of doing some kind of arbitrage there. Like if we can uh, acquire, you know, what we believe are great developers that haven't had a huge hit uh, and pair that with like amazing IP, um, maybe this is a way that we can unlock, you know, blockbuster blockbuster game development below market cost, you know, versus acquiring uh, a combined entity that's that's already a AAA developer with their own IP. I don't know. Do you, do you guys think that that might be the play that they're going for here? I get that, but like, why wouldn't you just buy game rights? What, well, they've been doing that too, right? They just bought a bunch from was it Square Enix? Where they, they bought like just recently Tomb Raider, Deus Ex, and Thief. Yeah. Which I mean, those are I mean, those are my childhood right there. You know? I, mean, I mean, when it relates when it relates to the Tolkien catalog, you know, why would you take yeah. you know book rights and movie rights and the whole whole enchilada? Um, you know, if you're if you're what you're really good at is this game stuff, you can get that much cheaper than you can by getting, getting the whole catalog. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's one, a Maybe it's a diversification play as well. You know, um, I, I wonder if, if it's a way that they feel that they can, you know, diversify their revenue streams away from just gaming. So, you know, we're currently in a bit of a downturn in the in the gaming market. Um, so maybe there's some appeal in that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm curious. I mean, one of the interesting things is I, I know the Amazon deal for the Lord of the Rings rights for their Rings of Power was like a $250 million deal over I don't remember how long five years or something like that so it seems like this could potentially be creative in the like medium term to them like as just a right holder and then if able to get some more uh, squeeze out of it by licensing the IP to their own companies I think maybe there's a long-term trend there I think the other thing is because they're getting so big like they kind of have to swing big in order to make an impact on the bottom line maybe maybe that's it I'm not you know this isn't my area of expertise nice why don't we uh we got a lot to cover when we go on to the the next story Great. so 
Uh, up next today, we have, um, I believe this was actually the cover story from the most recent uh, issue of, of Bloomberg, but uh, the, the headline is, a crypto winter king wants to reanimate the industry. And this was essentially a profile on uh, Yatsu, uh, who, for those that don't know, uh, he is the head of Animoca Brands. And uh, the first thing that jumped out about this piece was they did some amazing illustrative artwork of Yat as the Night King. <laughs> from Game of Thrones, which just is, just has to be seen to be believed. But um, I thought this was a really cool uh, profile piece um, that is fair and reasonable, which is something that we don't see in, in most uh, most Web3 based profile pieces. Most of them right now are extremely negative. Um, and during the bull market, they were all more extremely glowing. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, for anyone who doesn't know Animoca, you probably haven't listened to the podcast before because we talk about them a lot, but they uh, either, you know, own or invested in essentially every relevant uh, Web3 gaming business or uh, gaming related NFT um, uh, brand. So this includes things like Sandbox, Axie Infinity, OpenSea, Dapper Labs, uh, Yuga, which is the, you know, the, the, the group behind Board Ape Yacht Club. Um, the list is, is endless. I think it's over 350 uh, investments that they have right now. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a great profile piece. Uh, one thing that I think most people don't know about Animoca is they were like a basically a struggling, maybe even so goes far to say has failed uh, mobile game developer that just toiled for years. Um, and then they placed a bet on the distribution rights for CryptoKitties and kind of never looked back from there uh, as far as like leading in the Web3 space. So um, yeah, just a, a couple of quick pull quotes from the article. Um, the crypto winter has wiped out 2 trillion in digital currency market market value since November, and many investors have gone into hibernation. Animoca, Asia's biggest investor in blockchain projects, is assembling a vast portfolio of finance, gaming, and social media companies, more than 340 in all. Um, and uh, Xander pulled a, a, a cool little graphic that shows kind of the, the, the VC activity in crypto startups. And it's pretty interesting. You just see like a you know, 45 degree angle up into the right uh, from like late 2020 through Q1 of this year, and then just falling off a cliff when we hit Q3 this year. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the article goes on to talk about Animoca's strategy of really going on the offensive now that we're in this uh, bear market. Um, and uh, one of their, uh, one of the companies they invest in uh, uh, said, if people say this is crypto winter, then 2018 is, uh, oh, sorry, this is a quote from Yacht. He said, if people say this is crypto winter, then 2018 was the crypto ice age. Now is the time to deploy more capital, not less. Um, and so of note, I think, you know, Animoca has been through this cycle before. They've seen like a crazy crash in the market and they've seen how it can pan out to make investments at this time. So they're basically just broadcasting their, their strategy. Um, and yeah, like it's, it's to the point where Animoca is so omnipresent now where, uh, you know, someone gave the quote, uh, people are, people are saying they're everywhere. So if Animoca is not invested in you, what's wrong with you? So it's become such a mark of, uh, not even mark of pride, but almost like a necessarily requirement for people that see your Web3 gaming project as, as valid, uh, that they're establishing something pretty powerful here. So yeah, what do you guys think of overall of Animoca broadcasting the strategy of basically saying like, yeah, we, we're doubling down in the space, we're investing even harder in the spare market. Um, what are your thoughts on this, on this, this strategy and this profile on them? Uh, it's hard to call it a strategy. Uh, Cause they're just buying everything. It feels like <laughs> it, it's, hard, it's hard. I mean, obviously this, if you've got cash, this is time, the time to buy. There, there's going to be a, a lots of, uh, lots of cheap assets to buy. Uh, lots of companies that 
thought for sure their next round was was well secured or that they'd be able to just issue a bunch of nfts and that would be the, bring in the cash that they'd need to to support their business for the for the short term uh, so it's a great time to have cash it's a great time to invest in web3 if you've got the cash but like like i said I, it's hard for me to identify, you know, what is the strategy versus just uh, he's got a shotgun and he's just shooting it and shooting everything out of the sky he can find. Yeah, we've had um, we've have talked to many people at Animoca. We had Robbie on this podcast, Robbie, uh, CEO of Animoca on the podcast, and his basic premise is he thinks all gaming is going to be crypto gaming at some point, which I think I, I had a slight disagreement with his perspective on that. We sort of had a, a conversation, but he has a compelling argument. It's like why even even games. You used to, to buy a box and then sell the box of you know your you know favorite N64 game or whatever. And he says like, hey, I, th I think in the long term, over the long term of history, you'll be able to basically do that with your digital games as well, even if they're not, even if they are premium and not IP. Not sure, we'll see. Um, but I think that is sort of the the bet that him and Yacht are taking is like, listen, we believe this is a step change in the games industry. That everything will eventually flow through to being a crypto game, and so they're making that bet. And even if they're not quite 100 right with that, it's still there's still so much value that's going to be created in that in the crypto gaming space, they are so well positioned. Um, and we have, we have, uh, I know, I think I mean, we're big fans of Animoca. We think they do a really good job. And we have a, a slew of guests from Animoca coming up in the next few months. So stay tuned for more of the Animoca brands. Uh, yeah, we're basically <laughs> going to have Animoca month <laughs> coming up pretty soon here. Uh, Xander, I think I would put like a slight asterisk to sort of like Animoca's take on the space and, and you know, the things that Robbie said. I, 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 I feel like the um, term crypto game is almost like a, uh, derogatory term. Um, sure. And I think their position is more like, like the model that we have right now of like, there's a game and you play and earn a token and you can sell the token. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily what Animoca thinks is going to be omnipresent. I just think sure. that their play is like, you know, some some aspect of the underlying building blocks of ownable assets, including the game itself being an ownable asset. I, I feel like that's the broader thesis that they have. The, the public marketplace for assets. No. Yes. Yeah, and, and the tangibility. And they actually had a really interesting, I think it's in this article or somewhere else. Basically, they sunset one of their old games because they lost the Formula One license. They had a racing game, which was a blockchain-based game that had a Formula One license. They sunset the game because they lost the license. But because people still hold the assets of the game, or they earned in the game, they're now going to spin up a new game, which is going to take those assets and transport them into that game, which is pretty freaking cool. You know, as opposed to a game dying, you're losing everything in it. Now, actually, you get to maintain some of that value as they rebuild this game over time. So... You know, like you said, we're fans of theirs and um, more to come. Any, any other thoughts here? I, I believe that there's still so much friction that I, it's hard for me to, to know when or, or guess when it'll be mass market. Yeah, uh, it's, it's 100%. Not, not easy to do. I, I don't get why MetaMask is the only solution out there or one of the only solutions out there for like getting your crypto into a browser. Uh, and then even that's not easy to do. So, and, and I think until they, they somebody solves that, um, it, it's it's going to be hard to take a mass market. No, that's 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 spot on. It's one of the worst things about Web three gaming right now. You have to jump through so many hoops just to have an experience. So very alienating new new people. And to me, I think that the thing that really has to be solved is how can the major platforms get their piece of the pie in a way that makes sense for both parties where you know Apple and Google are incentivized to streamline the onboarding process for for their devices which doesn't exist yet well, well I'm a, a big fan of of game assets as NFTs because you participate you can participate in the transaction forever right so every time it changes hands if you build your 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 contract correctly 
you can get 10% of that transaction each time that that sword changes hands with somebody. So as a game developer, I, I'm I'm all for it. I think it, I think it's it's a great idea. Uh, I'm not so sure that the model that people talk about often of of using the same sword in multiple games is ever going to work because that to me is as a guy who makes games is like, well, how do you balance that sword across three games? I, I just don't see how that part. Yeah, so, so many within thoughts the here. Same, within the same game and having a marketplace where people can buy assets that, that they're now a fan and the other guys not playing the game as much anymore or just you know got super lucky on a on a loot box and said holy shit i've got a thousand dollar item here i i'm a big believer in that piece yeah i've like so many thoughts and there's, there's a whole podcast i think just here i think sure. one of the things that um whatever eventually exists as web3 games is going to look completely different than what we see today i think one of the interesting things i can imagine in the short term is a studio an internal studio making a a series of games and then having assets have different uses across the different games that could exist you could get into one and use it for something else in another i think that seems really really interested in, in terms of moving players in between your own games um i think that you know the staking as it exists today in games i hope dies i don't really i think it's actually pretty negative and i can sort of talk about why that is some other time i don't think it's mm. worth doing deep dive here um but i guess any other thoughts here we have one more crypto piece before we go on to our main yeah interview. I mean, uh, Xander, you know, I can talk about this for hours, but I, I, one thing that I've been talking a lot with the Web3 developers I've been meeting with lately is just when I had this re this realization, um, it's, I mean, it's, it's quite apparent, but there's so much being built in the space right now. And we literally have zero models of long-term sustainable projects. Like mobile is a world of like, you know, copy paste plus one, like that's what 95% of products are like. There has been no, like even the largest games in the space have had to do massive pivots when the an original business model has not worked out. Um, so it's just a crazy time. And I don't know if there's been a parallel to this in at least in gaming where there's so much being built, but literally not one. I mean, maybe VR, you could argue there's, there's some parallels in VR, Hope but not. like, <laughs> but, but just like we're so much money, so much being built, lots of potential, but no example of a long-term sustainable uh, gaming business model. It's just crazy times and very fascinating. Yeah. So um, someone who's doing very well in the Web3 ecosystem is FTX. So here's a report from, I believe it's Coindesk. Yes, Coindesk. FTX posted $1 billion in revenue last year amid crypto rally. Sam Bankfried's crypto exchange FTX po posted 1.2 1.02 in revenue last year, jumping 1,000% from 16, uh, 89 million in the prior year. CNBC reported, internally, citing internal documents that it had viewed. FTX posted an income, a net income of 388 million in 2021, up from just. 17 million in 2020, the documents showed. During the first quarter of 2022, FTX recorded 270 million in revenue and is on track to post about 1.1 billion in revenue this year. So super FTX is a super, super interesting business. It's the largest crypto exchange in the globe, I believe. Is that Warren, you want to double check if that's right? I know it's larger than Coinbase for sure. I'm thinking it is the largest in the world. Um, and they're an obvious winner of the crypto winter. winter. Um, they've been able to do stuff like buy BlockFi, which is my preferred non-custodial wallet, which you can the maxis can crucify me for. Um, but for pennies on a dollar, I think they spent 25 million for it when it was it had raised like 400 million dollars in VC funding. And so they're just snapping up assets left and right. So, so I'm, I'm obviously I think you know they've done a very very good job of monopolizing the space. And 
I was kind of interested in the company, so I started looking it up. And they're not publicly traded, so you can't actually own FTX, right? But they do have an ownership token as a token, which you can buy on their exchange. And I was like, I haven't touched anything like that so far. And so I'm curious, Warren or Derek, do you have any experience with these type of ownership tokens and like how much of a risk pro proposal it is to sort of snap these things up? Or is that just completely speculative? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, you're talking about crypto, so it's, it's yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I've, I've seen that with uh, with other exchanges. So there's other Korean exchanges and, and uh, Hong Kong exchanges that have done the same thing, where they where they've issued their own token alongside their their, uh, their other sales products. Um, I'm not sure what the what the value of owning a token in the exchange is. Like, what what is the purpose of that? I, I don't see what they're doing with it or what the what the what the um, what the utility of it is, and I guess that's the that's the key word here, right? What is the when you're selling a token? What is the utility of that token? Well, in theory, it's a claim on their their uh, the revenues, right? Which they can issue in their own token. Um, well, let's take a step back. Let's just talk about the value. I mean, so everyone's getting crushed. These guys are not. That's. I mean, I guess it's it's good to be king, right? How how are they how are they not getting crushed? I'm so confused by that. And and, and one thing that kind of triggered my my brain was like there was some sort of a leaked a deck that people got a hold of that did uh was how we found out about their their 2022 revenues uh so i'm not sure he, they leaked, he, well they he tweeted he tweeted oh yeah we yeah, leaked he tweeted that the numbers were, were pretty correct i think the main thing yeah. is it's it's trading they take a cut of trades and so yeah. no matter what they're getting if you're shorting or you're you know you're buying or whatever you're still getting a piece of it yeah I think it's an interesting coincidence that we're covering FTX and Animoca both this week because there's there's a lot of parallels. I mean, both uh, you know both have been through the cycles before. Um, both built up cash in the last bull market and then are going on acquisition sprees in this bear market, and they're almost like a inter interlocking pieces of the same the same puzzle. Like whereas uh, Animoca is you know primarily gaming focused, but but dabbles. Uh, in you know DeFi and other parts of the space, FTX really owns everything related to like you know finance uh, exchanges and, and and DeFi. But is is I'd say dabble because it's still you know uh, I think billions of dollars. But uh, but dabbling in in gaming. Um, and so I wonder if we're seeing them kind of like rise up as the. I mean clearly today like they're the two biggest names in in the crypto space. I'm curious. What the long-term relationship between these these entities will be, um, but I, I definitely wouldn't bet against uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. Like he's been extremely savvy with both like the investment decisions they've been making, and but just like how they've been managing their money. Like he he you know he made his name initially as as a trader, and I think you can tell it in some of the ways that he um, manages uh, their portfolio. Hmm. Hopefully he's not levered as much as a lot of the uh, a lot of the, the the traders and exchanges are out there, and, and as we've seen with you know a couple of different big big headline stories right. of, of markets that crash. Well, they're spinning off profits, and that's the, that's the difference, right? They're one of the ones they have business model that's spinning off profits, and that's that's different than most of the people in the space. Okay, um, let us go ahead and move on to our main topic, where we're going to do sort of a hard pivot and talk about building teams and culture. So, uh, Derek, you've been Building, doing building teams for quite some time. I'm sure Warren is also going to have some input on some of these questions as well. But let's just go to you first, Derek. Um, tell us a bit about yourself, your background, what Flowplay is, and what you do there. Okay, so um, making games is the only real job I've ever had. Uh, I've been a bartender, I've been a waiter, I've done other things. But uh, in the early 90s, I started making games, so I've been doing it about 30 years now. 
um, uh, started off making CD-ROM games, uh, you know, that you have to go to the store and actually buy and bring home. Uh, and then I got into online games in the late 90s uh, with a series of companies. Uh, one was called iWin. Uh, iWin was an online game company. We became the, we are, at one point, we were the sixth biggest internet company in the world. Wow. Uh, traffic wise it was it was pretty crazy but that was that was 1999 2000 so things were in, in, insane back then uh but luckily we sold that company um and and to a public company called uproar i worked for uproar for a while then uproar uh bought um was bought by vivendi and then vivendi mm. bought blizzard so we so we were part of part of blizzards vivendi vug vivendi universal gaming all kinds of crazy stuff going on there uh, uh, so that was a wild ride. Uh, I was the VP of product for online for the, uh, the Vinny Universal Games Group uh, and uh, got to see a lot going on. I actually ran a website. Uh, one of our, our properties was virtualvegas.com. Mm -hmm. uh, so I got my taste for social casino watching uh, watching a virtual Vegas. Uh, went on to a company called Game House up here in Seattle. We sold the Game House to Real Networks. Uh, I had to work at Real Networks for a couple of years. I started their mobile division in 2004. Uh, built 25 mobile games between 2004 and 2006. Uh, it, it was a it was a terrible time to be in mobile games. Uh, you had a you had 64k to to build a mobile game in that includes graphics and everything. Uh, so you have to be extremely creative. Like one day of UA spend now. <laughs> you have to be extremely creative to make a game in 64k. Uh, and I hated that. <laughs> so my my the guy that was uh, one of the guys I hired to build some of those games for me, Doug Pearson, uh, got along really great with really brilliant guys. Got an art uh, PhD in artificial intelligence. Uh, <clears throat> so I asked him to start a company with me. Uh, I had an earnout with with Real Networks. I had to work there for three years, but two years in, I told them that I was going to start my own company and gave my one year notice. <laughs> and so Doug and I spent the next year trying to figure out what the co what company we would start and, and what what we would build and why we would build it. Uh, so there were a couple of things in mind. It was 2006, and we decided that virtual currencies and virtual worlds were the <clears throat> the things that would shape where uh, where games were going. And so we built a platform and raised money around that idea. Uh, Intel Capital, the, uh, the investment arm of the Intel, the chip maker, uh, gave us our Series A to, to go do that. And so we built a platform for virtual currencies and virtual worlds and launched it in January 2007. Our first game was called Our World. It was for mostly for teenage girls, but a virtual world where teenage girls could, you know, buy clothing, have an apartment, buy furniture, invite their friends over, go ice skating. Uh, we had we had almost 300 games that we licensed from developers around the world that inside the game that kind of drove the economy. Um, Time with the metaverse before was cool. It, it, uh, we still, you know, uh, that, that game launched in 2008. And uh, we get letters all the time from people like telling us, hey, I grew up in your game. That's how I learned to talk to people. That's how I learned to, you know, go out on dates bef uh, before I actually could go out on dates in the real world. Uh, pretty incredible. Uh, so 2012, we launched a social casino on the same platform. Uh, so took what was a, a teenage person, a teenage game and made it for older ladies. Uh, so okay. now uh, Vegas World is a game where older ladies uh, are 25 and hot. <laughs> <laughs> they love it. Uh, 65,000 people have gotten married in our wedding chapel. 
so wow. there's, there's a lot of social activity in the games. People fall in love. People form lifelong friendships. Uh, they go to they meet each other in little conventions from around the world and go hook up and and you know hang out together. Um, and yeah, and so we sold the company in December to a casino chain called uh, Wind Creek Hospitality. This December, like recently? Just this past December. Oh, wow. Okay. Congratulations. Yeah, so we we uh, we sold the company to Wind Creek. Uh, Wind Creek's a great company. They've got casinos in the Caribbean uh, and all throughout the U.S. They have seven casinos across the U.S. and uh, like Philadelphia, um, Georgia, Florida, Chicago, and Nevada. Nice, cool. Like I, I so I'm kind I'm, of oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, 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 well, I'm I'm I would love to. I'm very curious about social casino, and I almost want to talk about that. But I think we should maybe stay on task and maybe come back to the end if there's if there's still time. Um, quick, quick side note, Derek. I I think I missed you. I was looking at your LinkedIn. I think I missed you by about ten years. But I also worked for the Game House Real Networks ish. Oh, entity. Really? Yeah, I worked for uh, Blastworks briefly in like the mid uh, 2010s which oh, was so like, I think it's like that essentially what the game house rebrand for like their mobile division. It was all a little confusing to me, even okay. when I was there. Yeah, I, I started the mobile group in 2004. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Cool. So I guess the, the place I want to focus on is like, obviously you can't make all these games and work over all this, this time without building really good teams. And so that's the sort of thing I want to focus on now. Mm -hmm. yep. And if we think Take a step back and just think, what are truisms that have lasted through the ages? What are some of the key components for building successful teams? Wow. Uh, well, I have, a, I have a specific theory and specific things I do that are probably a little different from a lot of other people. Um, for me, I think the most successful products are made by collaboration. I think it's uh, there, there's another approach. There are some people that think like the vision of one person uh, the one director, like a movie, is is the way to go, and there's successful games that are made that way. Uh, but for me, I think it's games are such such um, multi um, multifaceted things from the visual perspective, from a logic perspective, from a programming perspective. I don't think you can. I think you have to have a really collaborative team. And and so one thing I tell people when we when we talk about this subject is um, I'm not into rock stars. I, I I don't like having people on my team who really have huge egos. Uh, I mean, I've got some brilliant team members, but they're humble about it, and and that's what I look for is people that are are you know smart enough to know that they don't know everything, and that they if, by collaborating with other people and and learning from other people and and sort of working together that you can create something much, much greater than you could if, you, if you're, if, you know, if you're building it by yourself and sort of like thinking, well, I know it all, I'm not gonna listen to anybody on my team. So that's the, that's the first point. And we, we call it the no asshole policy uh, because it, it, it's sort of related to that. You know, I, I, I test for, you know, does this person get along with people? Am I gonna enjoy actually being in a room with this guy? Because when it comes down to it, uh, it's my company and I want to have fun working there, and I don't want to have to deal with with uh, with personalities that are hard to manage, hard to juggle. Where I'm apologizing to other people for their behavior. <laughs> I want everybody to enjoy working there. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think Warren could say that he very much subscribes to that same um, interview process. I mean, I think my interview process with Warren was hanging out and playing a magic tournament. And so I was like, no idea if I could do the job or not. <laughs> just like, can I stand here? <laughs> um, yeah, 
I, I agree with with those sentiments, Derek. I, I was just going to throw in like a couple of things that we really try to uh, do when building out building out teams uh, here. Um, a couple of tips on my end. One is just like try to be in a position where you can be that these two things are related. Um, try to be in a position where you can be hiring proactively rather than reactively. If you're like if your team is completely overstaffed or like overworked, and you're trying to backfill to get work done, you're a lot more likely to take the first qualified person and a lot less likely to get like the, you know, the optimal person for your company and for, for your culture. And like the, the other side of that is uh, our philosophy is to try to hire great people, not hire roles. Um, so it's, uh, it's a little, I think it's easier when you're a startup and things are more flexible. Like, you know, we, especially when you're, you're smaller stage company like us, there's a million things that you want to do. And so when we kind of scout for people, even if it's like, well, our job is for a, a UA role, this person only checks about half those boxes, but they'd be really great at this thing that we know is going to be a future initiative. Like mm -hmm. even Xander, when we brought you in, like your background's more in marketing, but you did a bunch of stuff in our first two years that had sort of nothing to do with what you wanted to do. But, you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully that worked out, but that that's two Still tips here. from our end. Yeah. So go ahead. Go ahead. no, no, no. I would say too, like, you know, you sparked an idea in my head that in the beginning, what you really want are a lot of generalists. You want you want people that can really cover a lot of bases because startups, you know, you have very ill-defined roles to be usually uh, because, you know, the, I know as CEO, I was doing the customer acquisition. I was doing the finance. I was doing the QuickBooks in the early days. I, you know, I was wearing a lot of hats and so was a lot of other people. So I think you certainly look for journalists in the early stages of the company. That's a great tip as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I want to talk about, and I'd like to get specific here, but I'm not exactly sure how is like, what are, what are things to avoid when growing a team? And we talked a little bit, about no asshole rule, but like, maybe it's like tactically, what are, what are, what are specifically things you can do to, to screen for that? And like, what are other pitfalls you want to avoid when trying to grow up a team, especially growing a team quickly? Um, well, one one thing that I've found, and you know, in kind of prepping for this a little bit, thinking back on on my career and, and things that I've done that were good and bad, uh, some of the best things I've done involved uh, making sure that everybody knows each other on a personal level. I think that it's very easy for uh, people to, to take you know take advantage of other people or not appreciate other people's work if they don't really know them on a personal level. So I make sure that. You know, we go to dinners that we do things together as a team, so that you know, oh, he's he came in late on Monday because he's got a kid he's got to drop off at nine thirty, and his wife's working too. So if you if you know just a, a little bit about uh, the other people you're working with, then it smooths out a whole lot of uh, for a whole lot of issues. You you really get a lot a lot um, lot solved that way. One of the most extreme examples of that is I used to have a team in Helsinki. And um, when we, we first bought this company, um, there became this antagonistic relationship between the Seattle team and the Helsinki team. The, the Helsinki team would, would complain about the Seattle team to me, and the Seattle team would complain about the Helsinki team to me. And what I realized is like, they didn't know each other. They were, all they were were like these, these people over email, because we, we weren't using Zoom or any right. of these, these kind of tools at the time. It was all over email and, and over phone calls. And so I forced it. I made three people from Helsinki come to Seattle and I made three people from Seattle go to Helsinki to sort of like integrate the teams. 
and it's it's unbelievable what that does people come come back after you know doing this experiment for a month and um a lot of the the friction went away there, there was no longer the sort of like complaining about these people over there it was like oh no those guys are on our team they work with us we're all we're all, we're all part of a unit yeah and i think in the in the context of the new world we're living in i don't know how remote you guys are but we're fully remote i think that's probably more important than ever getting some face time to with each other so people can really know each other on sort of a more intimate level and so then when you're not just like a bubble on a screen you're more you're like a real human which i think is gonna will do a lot and we've no we have seen that it does a lot for cohesion uh, building team cohesion um one thing i wanted to sort of focus on is culture and i think you know basically anyone who builds teams talks about culture at some point and i the, to begin what i'd like to talk about is like how do you define culture in a corporate environment and i guess maybe let's go to both of you for this but you can go first Derek. Culture is who you hire. I mean, it's it's it, you can you can do things like um, you know design an office in a certain way, and you can do you can have events, and you can have uh, you know organize your team and have them sit in certain places in a proximity to one another and arrange the seating and stuff. Uh, but it it really comes down to the people that you hire and trying to hire people that are at least in a similar mindset or at least have uh, similar things that they think are important. Uh, so that that's the first step is just, you know, being cognizant of that uh, or seeing how someone else that you might hire for the team would fit in. And they, and they don't have to be homogeneous. They can be, you know, different, but different in a way that one of the things we test for is creativity. Uh, so even if you're an engineer, I want a creative engineer. I want somebody that listens to music, uh, somebody that you know appreciates art, you know, uh, somebody so that we have these these sort of touchstones that we can talk about and have in common. Yeah. So Warren, same question to you. How do you define what culture means in a corporate environment? Yeah, I think I think about this a lot, and you know, as you said, Xander, this gets even harder for remote teams. Like. You know, it's it's fine to have like a list of you know company values, um, and you know we, we we have that too. But you can't you can't tell people this is like it's not an effective way to just say like this is our culture, and it just becomes so right. Uh, I think the best you can do if you are um, you know if you're you're a founder or if you're a manager is is I mean it's cliche, but like you have to demonstrate the things that you want to be part of your culture. Um, one thing I personally try to do is try to really be of service to my team uh, and really show that like, you know, a, a, a value that I want for our company is basically like we rise and fall together, you know, don't don't ever place blame on a single individual because our problems are a lot more complex and a combination of our combined work. So, uh, you know, the, the best I can do for that is to, you know, come to my team and not say, hey, you you need to do this or this, but but rather like, Hey, it seems like this is a difficult issue. Like, what can I do to, like, what resources do you need to solve this, or what can I do to like take some of this this pain away from you? Um, and so, I've definitely seen that like the more that that I have generally tried to, and not telling people these are the values, but just embody the values. The more I have generally seen them reflected by the people uh, I work with. And 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 just backing up a little bit, I did want to touch on um, you know when when we talk to the negative uh, the pitfalls like. Bunker mentality um, is, is like another term I would use for what Derek was speaking to, but that's like one of the biggest cultural pitfalls. 
of like a us versus them. It can be between your teams. It can be between your team and your your clients or the other party. And like that was really magnified to me in like my first game industry job at a publisher where we found out that one of our developers actually had uh, on their company fridge, they had an image of like the, the product lead from our team at the publisher. And it just said our enemy. And it was just the publishing product lead. And that was just like in their at, on, on magnet to the front of their fridge. So like, oh, what does that do? You, it's like bunker mentality in the extreme of like us versus them. Like, how are you possibly gonna have a, and big shock, like that game flopped, you know, but uh, <laughs> This, this is to me almost like a, a parody of like how you can make that bunker mentality a pitfall. Yeah. Yeah, one thing I do with my team is, um, or make sure that people, people feel like we care about them as people. And it's not just, we care about you because you're a great engineer. We care about you because you're a great artist. We care about you as, as people. I have one-on-ones with, with my direct reports, but we don't talk about, we try not to talk about work too much. I, I spend I, I meet with them for a half hour at least once a month, and usually we go for a walk if it, if the weather's decent, and we'll just go for a walk and we'll say, "How's your kids? How's your family? What's happening? What's is anything? Is there anything bothering you? Anything worrying you?" And and it's really not like, "Hey, did you get that email out to that 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 person last Thursday?" It's really about, "Hey, let's just let's just chat and see. I want to know where your head is." So, I mean, a few, a few of the sort of key takeaways, if we're to summarize, it's like, one, start with hiring good people to behave in a way that you think is respectable and inspires. It seems like that's sort of, you know, those are, I'm going to say basic, but that's like, you know, that, that's sort of the core of, of what you need to be doing is like get good people and then behave reasonably yourself. One of the things I, I, I kind of talk about is when it fails. So, you know, obviously every, every once in a while you make a bad hire, uh, people get in arguments. It's not always smooth sailing everywhere, especially in high growth environments where there's a lot of stress. On, it can be, people, there can be a lot of stress on people. How do you deal with conflict and failure within these teams? And, and when people are you know, at each other's throat, what are some tactical actions you can take to diffuse situation and make sure that everyone grows as, a, as responsive to it? I can start um, here, maybe. Go ahead. Um, you know, one thing I think, you know, really important and that we always try to do, like there's going to be constant failure. Like you're, you're making a game, the odds are incredibly against you. You know, it's like well, one out of 10 at best. Um, so if you're in this business, you have to go in like, you know, aiming for success, but, but being very ready to deal with failure. And one of the things that I've always tried to do and encourage my teams is like, really like identify and own the 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 failures um and and just be the be the first to bring attention to them of say like hey this is going worse than expected um this is this is why it's happening like never never try to ignore it or sweep it under the rug that's only going to lead to the problem getting magnified and increased tensions um it's, it's usually viewed as quite honorable by whoever you're working with to just be like even like like hey we made a massive mistake and i want to talk to you about it you know uh, and I, I think that that's just just entering these situations with open eyes and talking about them plainly rather than placing blame rather than sweeping under the rug. Um, I'd say that's like my most fundamental tip for how to deal with failure. I, I had a terrible boss, but he, he often had great advice. Uh, and then I use this one with my team a lot. It's uh, I say fail loudly. So if the moment you know anything's going on that that's that you, you feel like is headed in the wrong direction let everybody know because that's what we're here for we're here to support you we're here to we're here to figure this stuff out 
Uh, so don't, you know, don't keep it, keep it to yourself. Don't stress over things. The best way to, get, to relieve that stress is to, to let the world know like, hey, I'm worried about this thing. It's, it's, not, it's not on the right path. It's not going the right way. not going how I want it to. Uh, so be vocal about it because that's how you get help. And that's how you, you, you find, you know, the better you can, uh, the qu earlier you can head these things off, the better. Right. And I think there's like a hidden superpower to taking an approach like that, which is like when things actually matter and you feel like, you know, maybe you're not in agreement with whoever you're working with. Um, if you've been quick to own like, yeah, I was wrong here. I made a mistake here. It gives you a lot more leeway and authority to be like, you know, actually, I think I, I think you might be making a misstep here and and here's why and here's why I think we need to pivot. If you're someone who always insists on things needing to go your way or I'm always right, I can't make mistakes, you you lose that legitimacy uh, really quickly. Right. Most conflicts are misunderstandings. Most conflicts are people thinking something about the other person that's probably incorrect. Totally. So, so clearing up that that misunderstanding and you know that's what it is. Uh, is is the best way to sort of get over it and, and and move on is to figure out you know what what did you think was happening what was really happening what were they really thinking that were they they weren't really uh, doing something uh, towards you it just it just felt you felt like it was towards you right and that really gets magnified in remote teams right because it's if you're both in the same room with each other there's there's social cues you know mm -hmm. someone's content like intonation in their voice is very clear. But if you're pissed off at someone and read a sentence from them, you know, over Slack or whatever, if you're already feeling like they're an asshole, you're going to read it with the worst intent uh, right. and in the snippiest voice coming from them, right? And so I, I think that's one reason it's all the more complicated for remote teams to to sort out these conflicts. And you never know what kind of day someone's having, right? Right. If you don't if you don't know them at all, it goes back to like I was, what I was talking about. If you don't know they've got a um, a, a, a young child they're trying to care for who's giving them up all night. Then maybe you don't you don't know why they're cranky today, but if you knew that, you'd understand. Derek, could you expand a little bit more on just sort of like resolving conflicts and the the tactics that you use for that? Yeah, so I can I can think of one in particular where like going back to the whole misunderstanding things. Uh, there was two team members, and it doesn't happen off with my group, but for some reason these two team members, uh, one an engineer, one an artist. Uh, felt like the, uh, they were both um, dissing each other privately. Like they, like someone, they, they both felt that. And what we discovered was that they were <laughs> they were both wrong. Uh, but but to to resolve that, uh, I, I had to, I took them to lunch. Uh, so we we went we went off site, got some lunch. Uh, maybe we had a beer. I don't remember. Um, but it, you know, just talking it through uh, really helped, and 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 they're they're friends today, and they they get along great today. But the, some, somehow uh, there was a misunderstanding of of intent, and intent is sometimes hard to to determine. Uh, and then we figured out what the true intent of both of them was, and and sort of resolved the situation. But it, it really call comes down to people respecting each other as people. And because if you, and but because if you can't get to that level, well, then you have a real problem. Then you've got so, then you've got somebody that that is not going to work out and not going to be shouldn't be part of your team if they if they can't um, you know be personal with someone, understand where someone's coming from. If it's legitimate, then then they're they're not going to work out. Sunlight is the best disinfection, and that sort of seems like it's been a theme across both 
her interpersonal failure, relationship failure, as well as project level relationship failure, um, seems like it ties ties neatly up to what should be uh, incorporated deeply into your culture. So we're getting close to time, and there's sort of one last uh, question that I want to go to both of you with. And this is, you know, there's a lot of people within this who are mid to upper mid level management, um, especially at marketing companies. And I'm curious if you're, what are some key takeaways for young and aspiring team leaders that you can, I mean, sort of everything we discussed, but like if you're, here's like a North star um, for young and aspiring team leaders, what's some advice that you would give? Oh. And it has to be perfect and everyone has to be able to resolve their life <laughs> and, and grow their career based on this answer. I, I can start while, while Derek takes a, a moment to, to think. Um, the, the first thing that actually comes to mind for me, I guess two interrelated things. One is like find something that motivates you beyond money. Um, I think that's really important as a leader. And, you know, people people can can feel can feel what motivates you, you know, um, and uh, you need you need that. So your team can also embody that if, if it's a top down organization where everyone's primary motivation is is money, that's not going to lead to a, a healthy culture. Um, and the other side of that is, you know, make sure that what you're doing is actually something that brings you joy and then magnify that, radiate that. If, if, you, if you can't broadcast that, you can't expect it from the people around you. My best advice to anybody that's getting into games or in, in most, you know, commercial enterprises is know who your customer is inside and out and, and, and interact with them as much as you possibly can, because you'd be surprised how many people making games, making products, they don't understand, they don't really understand who's going to play their game or use their product well enough. Uh, and I, and so every month we do a user testing session where we're looking over the shoulders of people playing our products. And so we're every month, it's a different facet of some game we're playing, but then we bring everybody in the room to watch these videos that are over the shoulder videos of people playing the games. And always, always there are insights. There are always insights into like, what? They, they like that or they didn't like that. You know, the, the understanding your, your consumer and understanding who your, who your uh, customer is will, will make you a rock star on your team and it might make you a great leader in terms of leading your team because you will, you will have this expertise and you'll have this knowledge of your customer. Yeah, it sort of flows from purpose. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. Cool. Well, that's a wrap for our main section. We'll move on to our last segment, which is app of the week. Start with Warren. Warren, did you bring an app this week? I did bring an app this week, Xander. So Great. I'm uh, about to get on a plane tomorrow on, on, on that same team to see some of our, our team in person. Uh, and so I always use to try to get an opportunity to get a game that I think will be good to play on the plane. And this is uh, your monthly reminder that Apple Arcade exists and it has games on it. <laughs> so uh, I, download, I just downloaded uh, Jetpack Joyride 2. Um, and the interesting thing about this is like we're actually far enough into the mobile gaming era that we have games that are based on nostalgia for another earlier <laughs> era mobile mobile game. So I just started playing it. Um, it feels great. I mean, Jet, Jetpack, Jetpack Joyride, the original one, was one of the first uh, casual games that I ever really got into on mobile. Um, they've added a lot more uh, depth to it as far as like upgrades. And, uh, you know, it's it's got more of a shooter feel compared to the first one. Um, it definitely feels like something that was maybe in development for a while as a free-to-play game and then retooled for arcade. Um, but no, it's got it's got a great nostalgia vi uh, nostalgic vibe. Uh, kind of harkens back to a 
uh, more innocent era of, of, of mobile gaming. And uh, the first you know 20 minutes have been fun and I'm gonna dig into it on the plane. Cool. Uh, I had the misfortune of, uh, well, the fortune of traveling to Spain, but while in Spain, I got COVID. Uh, so my whole family had to fly back without me and I had to stay in Spain for five days in a hotel room by myself. Uh, so uh, Diablo Immortal saved my life. Uh, so, yeah. So yeah thank playing. you. Preach. It's a good freaking game. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, I love Diablo, played every single version of it uh, really, really deeply. And I think they did a great job. I mean, the end game is a little confusing. There is sort of a, a wall you get to once you get the past level 55 or so in any of your characters. Uh, but it is so true to the spirit of Diablo and the fact that you can play it on a phone and take it anywhere with you. Uh, it's, it's been a lifesaver. It's like really amazing to me that how they got lambasted so hard for that game. It's like such a su such a good gameplay experience on the mobile device. It literally like is like one of the best playing mobile games I've ever best feeling mobile games I've ever played. And it's just it's like so deep. It's so deep, and you get it for free. I don't see how people could complain about it. <laughs> I think it's it's the fun thing to to complain about, and so that's what people do. <laughs> Xander, how about you? You got something this week? Um. I do, and it's one that I not, don't think I've ever covered before, but I, I've talked about it so much, I'm like, not sure if I have. And so I went through all our old playing documents, and I haven't found it. So the, my app this week is Archiro, which is a free-to-play mobile game. It's basically a Twitch-based roguelike, which sort of redefined how you be, use Twitch behavior by making your auto attack uh, the default action. And so what it does is it basically strips out a lot of the input uh, barriers that happen with many of these Twitch-based free-to-play uh, mobile games. And it's also has a bunch of roguelike elements, which I really, really appreciate, which basically means you have random generated, randomly generated outcomes, which you can combine in interesting ways to have basically super overpowered characters on specific short-term runs. Um, really, really good game. I've been playing it on and off for a couple of years. It's probably, you know, it's up there with Diablo Immortal in terms of those, like some of the best feeling mobile games ever I've ever played. Um, and the, I guess the longevity really seeks for itself in terms of, you know, I've been playing on and off for more than more than a year. So actually I think oh, close to two years. So Archero is a great game. A-R-C-H? Like like Archer, but Hero. Yeah, definitely worth checking out. And also their monetization is so, they're so good. I mean, just from like a, a business perspective, they're so good at monetizing people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so you can do some research there. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Derek. Really appreciate having you. Um, if someone wants to get a hold of you or learn more about Flowplay, where can they do that? Uh, Derek at Flowplay, D-E-R-R-I-C-K at flowplay.com. Awesome. Appreciate you joining us. Warren, yeah. take us out. Yeah, Derek, it was great to have you, man. This was this was, was a super insightful discussion. Um, really appreciate you being candid about some of your uh, leadership tactics and some of the, the ways that you've got to see the success that you, you have with your, your companies. Um, as always, the podcast was brought to you by the good people over at Uptick. So here at Uptick, we do all things to help games grow, everything from UA, creative development, uh, to the tools uh, around measurement, data science, and uh, creative production, kind of all the interlocking pieces to have a bolt-on uh, buddy to help you grow your game. So that was a really bad description, but basically, if you're trying to, <laughs> if you have a great game, and you need some help growing it, reach out to us. We love to talk. We love to just, you know, meet meet cool developers too. And you can reach us through our website. That's uptick.com, U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Awesome. Talk soon.